Molten Salad Season 1, Episode 2. Welcome to the Molten Salad Podcast. Thanks for joining. I'm James. We're ordinary Americans, living the right way, doing the right thing. But 2020 has turned our world upside down. Toxic dualism is filling the air, and we're caught right in the middle. But there's got to be a way out somehow. I'm a lawyer, so people see me as an intellectual handyman. What can I do to help? Join me as I talk to my friends and learn from them as I explore a third way out. If I have to lose my pride or be open minded when I wasn't before, then so be it. This is our society and this is our time to do something positive. We hope to start small and end big. This is the Molten Salad Podcast. In this episode, I speak to my friend John Lee. John is a California licensed lawyer like me, but unlike me, he's an entrepreneur who has found success in the mortgage and healthcare industries. He speaks about the multifaceted nature of the George Floyd protests, which have gone far beyond Mr. Floyd himself. He also speaks about how the US government's response to the pandemic has been logically inconsistent. Have we witnessed the limits of individual rights here in America? We chat about ways the government can be much more effective while lessening the impact on people's rights. John, how are you? I'm good, James. How are you? I'm as good as I could be. How's life in Kentucky? Well, it's uh, it's different. It's fun. It's exciting, and um, I like uh, everything that's around here. So uh, people are friendly, and it's just easy to do business out here. That's good. Glad to hear that you're finding some good opportunities out there. You probably miss your family, don't you? Oh boy, hey, you won't believe it. I I think about them every day, and I wish I was there to tuck them in at night and read them books or just play with them. Chase them around the house, playing tag, but uh, they understand why I'm out here. So, and my wife is doing a great job taking care of them as well. So, that's good. Definitely, the virus outbreak has shown us the importance of family. Yeah, that's uh, it's funny. A lot of the people I talk to, and including myself, uh, we've experienced a a closeness to our immediate families. Uh, maybe a little bit of distance from our, a uh, little bit uh, further away families, but from our own family unit, we've got definitely gotten closer. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Absence uh, makes our hearts grow fonder. <laughs> That's very true, James. Very true. <laughs> well, let's dive right into it. Sure. In the wake of this, well, not in the way, in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak and the George Floyd killing. And the riots that have resulted from it, I'm noticing an inconsistency.、Uh, I'm noticing an inconsistency in the way that governments are restricting the rights of the American people. John, do you find it inconsistent that we are allowed to protest freely in the wake of the George Floyd killing? We can shout and scream and sing and chant and gather in as big of a number as we want、uh, to protest the killing. However, we are restricted in our ability to worship. There are attendance number limits.、Uh, I know Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, has even、uh, issued an order stating that we can't even sing at church. Do you find there to be an inconsistency between、uh, our right to worship and our right to protest, both of which are First Amendment rights? You know what, James? I <clears throat> I do find a imbalance when it comes to one side of the scale. Which is the civil liberties and the freedom to associate, and and your pursuit of life, liberty, happiness, 
versus the common good, which is in this case, not to spread the pandemic. And it's being, the laws are inconsistent in how they're applying this standard. I, I, I understand that with an angry mob, you probably don't want to stop them from protesting because it probably just get worse. Uh, if we're trying to stop them, they'll probably burn down more buildings, more frustration, whatever. But at the same time, people are trying to congregate uh, with loved ones and they're being told that they should not be, uh, they should not be doing that. And I find it troubling that people that are trying to assemble for good and at the same time exhibit social distancing are not allowed to congregate and not allowed to assemble, but people that are an angry mob protesting the death of Mr. Floyd, the unjust killing of Mr. Floyd, is done haphazardly. So we need to ask ourselves, and the government government needs to decipher what are the what is their goal here? Because when you have inconsistent laws, it leads to people not respecting the law. And I feel that as this goes on, as this pandemic continues, and there's going to be a lot more protests coming out because they were able to freely protest on the George Floyd incident. Yeah, uh, it's just really bizarre how um, the right to assemble uh, in your congregation and gather with your community, the people you love, the people that uh, you consider your family, how that's not considered as part of the greater good, but somehow uh, destroying property to protest your frustration at the system is considered as a greater good when in, in fact you're uh, bringing destruction to others, especially minority-owned small businesses, uh, for, which are the lifeline of the owners and the employees that are, that are working in them. Um, do, you, do you find an inconsistency in that we're not even calculating the, uh, the greater good correctly between these two issues? Well, can you, so James, are you saying that, <clears throat> are you asking me that in, are you let's asking put it this, me? Yeah, let's put it this way. You know, in the, in the early stages of the pandemic, uh, we saw um, basically the media blaming churches uh, as areas that were contributing to the spread of it. Um, like very early on in Korea, there was a, a fringe church in which uh, people sat together uh, very closely, almost um, touching each other and uh, gathering in very crowded um, spaces. And that fringe church was blamed for causing a, uh, an outbreak, um, an early outbreak of COVID uh, in Korea. Uh, so from early on, there was this idea that gathering in large groups uh, was considered dangerous and that we must avoid that. Uh, even and we must restrict our rights and, and avoid gathering in large groups, even though that's our right, uh, for the greater good. The greater good being saving as many lives as possible. But isn't it inconsistent then that uh, we are allowing you know, massive protests, some of which are killing other people, um, inadvertently or not. They are all uh, dis destroying property, um, destroying the livelihood and the lifeline of the owners and employees in those businesses. Where is the greater good in these protests? I, I, I see what you're saying. So you, you're not asking about public portrayal, but you're asking uh, what is the policy or, or, or seeming policy 
behind what's going on 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 both issues. Yeah. What 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 is the greater good of the protests uh, that that is uh, causing governments to allow people to protest freely when you would think that large gatherings that too is a large gathering that could potentially spread the virus. Right, right, right. So the, the hmm, I'm, I'm not so sure if there is a, a greater good in, in this issue. I, I think that people are just wanting to protest a person who was unjustly murdered by authority. And they're just wanting to uh, protest and they're exercising their, their, their bill of rights, uh, the right to uh, associate in you know, freedom of speech versus the churches having the right to the freedom of religion without government encumbrance. And it seems like there is no common good when it comes to that issue either. It, it seems like there is no common good and the rules are being applied haphazardly. And, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. If there's no logic behind policies, government policies, it's going to lead to a disrespect of the law and people are not going to follow it. Do you think then that much of the catalyst for the George Floyd protests is uh, because people are fed up with inconsistencies in the law and they just need an outlet to uh, blow some steam and this is a good injustice to rally around? Yes. Th thank you, James. You, you are... You are, you're saying directly what I was trying to avoid uh, <laughs> speaking directly. And I was kind of beating around the bush, but th that's exactly what I feel is happening here. I feel when you look at the protesters, for example, in the 90s, when during the Rodney King riots, there was really only a couple races, but mainly one race that was protesting and burning down the buildings and and fighting one another and it was uh, basically the blacks the the the, uh, the black american and then you had a little of the hispanics jumping and looting here and there but in this protest it's vastly the, different the protesters are multi-ethnic this time i i think there's more white people protesting <laughs> and holding the banner of black lives matter than there are even black people uh, i mean that's certainly true in the Huntington Beach protests, there was hardly any black people in them. Huntington and, Beach being a, uh, a mostly white and Asian area of Orange County. Correct. And that never happened during the, the 90s riots and the, the Rodney King riots. That was, that was completely different. So the question is, is why? Is it because in the last 20, 30 years, people care more for minorities being murdered by police officers being beaten or is it merely because they're so frustrated staying in their homes and read and, and reading conspiracy nonsense and not having an outlet so now there's the first opportunity which is basically throwing a match at a bunch of gasoline and there you have it every single major city in the entire united states that's a very that's a very that's a very unique and interesting angle at it. So, um, yeah, the the protesters definitely are multi ethnic. We can see that from video footage, um, but it's not that white Americans are more passionate about police brutality and injustice in the in the criminal justice system than black people are. It's more that perhaps it's that white people have 
been more affected by the restrictions of rights, which have been inconsistent across the board. So perhaps they're the ones that are in a way more frustrated by these uh, emergency orders than uh, other ethnic groups might be. Could that be true? Yes, yes. I, I think the protests that are occurring right now are multi-reasons. There's, there's a lot of reasons for it. It's not just the murder, unjust murder of George Floyd, but it's also an econ- there's an economic facet to it. And there's a social unrest, uh, frustration with the government, uh, Antifa, and there's just people plain old being bored, like a psychological element even. And start crazy. Right, because the the general population, everyone thinks of America as a democracy, but it it is in a sense, but it's, it's a representational republic, right? So we elect officials and these officials go and make their own decisions. And when we don't like what their decisions are, then we have to wait to the next election to vote them out. But during that time, they've already made all their own votes already. And so- Are you saying that that this is a problem of um, people not feeling heard? People, the, the simple problem of people not feeling heard, people not feeling represented by their leaders? Yes, I mean, exactly. People are, are, are being silenced. When this pandemic hit, all the shutdowns started occurring. Then the government says, okay, we're gonna fund the shutdown. We're gonna increase support for SBA loans. We're gonna throw in more money for unemployment, but no one is thinking, how is this gonna get paid? So we voted in $10 trillion in the last six months. We increased our deficit by $10 trillion. Money and, that we can't even imagine. It just seems too fake. The numbers just uh, don't even uh, register in our brains. It's incalculable. Uh, the, the computer went bust in our brains because the number is just too big. It's just like when you punching numbers into a calculator at a certain point, it, it, you can't put any more zeros into it, any more digits. So the question is, is how are we going to pay this? We already have a $20 trillion debt, $20 trillion plus, And then now we just added $10 trillion in a matter of days. Mm. And no one has a say, yes or no. And at the same time, no one knows where the money went. There's no transparency. So we have the problem of money, huge amounts of money, incalculable amounts of money being spent and the people not having a say uh, not having a Nor voice on, on the how and why, but I'm also seeing another way in which people are not having a voice, and it's that it's the inconsistent application on the various industries. You know, for example, when medical marijuana uh, is considered an essential business, but haircuts are not considered an essential business. When restaurants had to um, bear a lot of the brunt of the shutdown. There were many bus- there were many businesses that were allowed to open and many businesses that were that were not and uh, there was very little avenue for the businesses that were shut down to voice their opinion on why they should remain open. Uh, how is a restaurant worker deemed in this non-essential, but yet a worker at this a medical marijuana dispensary is essential? Well, what what's the logic behind that, or what is the what separates this choice? 
what splits the hair on this choice. I don't understand it. And I don't think anyone's trying to explain it to me either. So well, I, I think the original California emergency order from March 16th, if you look back at that language, it uh, was referencing federal policy regarding what businesses would be considered essential in an emergency. Uh, so, the, so, the, so the federal government laid out several sectors and any businesses that fell within those sectors, you know, for example, um, transportation or medicine or defense, um, uh, manufacturing, these were considered uh, essential sectors of our economy by the federal government. Anything that fell within that uh, was allowed to be open, remain open on March 16th in California, but uh, things that happened to fall outside of it were restricted, such as you know the, the entertainment venues, haircuts, salons, and, uh, and churches were also restricted. Okay, so then a recreational dispensary, a marijuana dispensary just slipped through the cracks then? Cause yeah, it has it's, nothing it's, it's hard to, yeah, uh, and, and that's, I think that's what we're getting at. You would think that um, whether it be a dispensary or a hair salon or a restaurant or a grocery store, if, a gro if, you're, if we're allowed to go into grocery stores and wear our masks and, uh, you know, space out and, you know, designate aisles as one way so that, you know, people don't uh, jam together and crowd together. If grocery stores are allowed to set protocols on how to remain safe in this pandemic, you would think that other businesses are intelligent enough to come up with uh, ways to remain safe, their own protocols to, you know, for example, a, a salon might only take in one client at a time and allow one person in at a time. So every sector can devise protocols to remain safe during the pandemic. You know, from a science standpoint, the, the virus doesn't know, you know, whether, whether it's uh, in a certain type of business or another. So it's, it's interesting. There's no, in a way, you can say that there's no scientific basis behind the, the, uh, the inconsistency of the, of the uh, laws that we're facing. I, I couldn't agree more. Another frustrating thing is how is the government determining when to reopen? And when they do, what industries or sectors are prioritized in that reopening? That's one. Two, what are the decision-making process in that? Who gets to determine that? Is it purely an executive branch type of thing? Or is there a, a voice? Do the people involved in those industries, are they allowed to say anything? It, it just seems like such an authoritarian and non-logical implementation of reopening. And then when they reopen haphazardly and randomly, then now we have the, we're seeing double the numbers of people getting infected in, uh, with this coronavirus. And not only that, decisions are being, not only are decisions being, new decisions being made based on the uptick in infections in the last few weeks. The problem with that is that there was not enough testing available in the beginning stages of this outbreak. So we have no idea the true number of people that were infected in New York City uh, back in March and April, for example. So this idea that there is an uptick, we need to qualify that because we don't really know um, how much of an uptick there really was because back then we didn't have accurate figures back in March and April. Not only that, we're not considering enough the fact that with increased testing, the, the rate of 
fatalities has gone down. Um, the, the, the number of fatalities has not gone up proportionally with the number of tests and the number of infected people that, uh, that we're seeing. So we're, we keep alleging there's an uptick, there's an uptick, but we're not truly examining the data uh, mathematically and with scientific rigor. I, I agree. It's, it, there just seems to be such haphazardness. I think on, that- the And on top of that, the inconsistency in the laws uh, that uh, we're facing uh, that we've been talking about uh, in this podcast. So inconsistent laws on top of poorly evaluated data. <laughs> yeah, and that culminates into basically the government not knowing heads or tails um, and have completely failed the American public in navigating this pandemic. John, uh, I want to switch gears a little bit because, yes, we've uh, spent the last several minutes criticizing, you know, the government's response, the government's inconsistency. But one consistent theme throughout this pandemic is the this quote pro-life mentality of of some people who believe that we must be as safe as possible, we must shut down as much as possible, stay at home as much as possible, limit our activity as much as possible we need to save as many lives as possible. It is foolish and cruel and flat out murderous and morally wrong to open up our lives back again uh, when it is too early to do so. Do you see any validity to, to that logic? Uh, let me uh, balance this by saying that there's also a cost of staying shut down, which is the effects on mental health, education, the ability of people suffering from other conditions to visit the hospital, the effects on marriages, the, the, uh, the drug use, alcohol use, suicide has gone up. So uh, staying shut down is also dangerous to health as well. But do you see any um, validity to uh, this pro-life idea of uh, shutting down as much as possible? Do they have a valid point there? Well, if we compare ourselves to other countries, who have implemented measures that to the Americans seems like giving up their civil liberties and civil rights, it seems to be very effective and their economy is able to survive without a complete shutdown. Case in point, South Korea, they're extremely diligent on testing and forced almost 100% of the population to test. The testing also included contact uh, uh, tracing. And this allowed them to isolate folks that were infected by the virus and isolated. And that also adding on top of that, the social distancing measures, it led to an, almost an elimination of the disease. We look at another country such as Vietnam, a country of 96 million people who did the exact same thing, extreme contact tracing, which led to zero deaths. How is that even, that's like an astronomical, how, how can zero people die? Zero, is that verified? Z yes, that's verified. Sounds too good to be true. Well, yeah, it's zero people that died in a country of 96 million and they have infections there as well. There must be something so, uh, good about the food down there. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, but in America, the minute you say contact tracing, you have a bunch of people going to jump up and down and protest and say, hey, 
your what are you doing with this information why do you have to uh, you you need a warrant to to be this invasive in my body in my house okay then what do we do that's your right but what do we do with the with the people that are walking around not wearing masks and that are infected of course you will tout your civil rights as much as you can so one of those people uh, cough in your face it seems so, like john it seems like john that yeah the countries that have handled this outbreak the best they have societies that are group oriented, where the people are willing to do things for the good of the team, to take one for the team, to sacrifice their individual freedom a little bit, if it means upholding the greater good. So, you know, for the benefit of the nation, if I need to give up my right and allow the government to trace me a little bit so that I can get warning messages that say, a man who was infected was shopping at Kroger or Ralph's and uh, went to such and such bar and then got a haircut at such and such place. If you, if you uh, visited any of these businesses, please go get tested immediately. You know, people in these societies are willing to uh, um, give up their rights a little bit uh, for the benefit uh, of their society. Um, it seems like in American culture, however, we're a little bit reluctant to, to do that, but it's come at a cost of um, in the long run, it's affected our rights to uh, live the lives we want uh, even more because we were not willing to make a relatively small sacrifice. So therefore, we end up uh, giving up. It's 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 hindering our lives uh, even more because we weren't willing to make such a small sacrifice. Is is that the way you see it? Well, it's it's certainly not because these countries have a superior healthcare <laughs> than, than the United States in terms of technology. And, and budget, it's not hard to see that it's the policies that these governments put into place that would seem to be infringing upon our civil liberties and our civil rights that allowed them to eliminate this disease. While in America, being the most technologically advanced world superpower to have the most deaths, 130,000 deaths more than any other country have most of the deaths is ridiculous and it's purely from behavioral reasons. And so the maverickness, the wild, wild west individualistic attitudes has been a great challenge for us as Americans to defeat this disease. John, do you and see John, do you see that the coronavirus has exposed the limits of American freedom and American individual rights? It absolutely has because it is proven, it, it is empirically has been proven that in a pandemic situation, that if you don't give up the certain freedoms for the common good, for the greater good. If you're not willing to be a team player, basically. If you're not willing to be a team player, then the risk is everyone gets infected and everyone potentially can die from this disease. But yet Americans are sitting there beating their chests and saying that you can't take our freedoms away from me. And it's so sad because we should, we don't live in a bubble. We all live together. We share the same air. We share the same water, the ground, everything. All we have to do is temporarily suspend it, uh, our freedoms, so that we can all survive 
in a healthy manner. It does no good if we all survive or we all die, but we're all unhealthy and damaged for the rest of our lives, leaving, living a poor quality of life. So what you're saying is if we're all team players, then society can come along in a reasonable fashion and we can reasonably have most of our rights. If we're not team players, then our rights end up suffering even more greatly than they should have. Exactly. It's a temporary, we're trading something temporary so that we have something more permanent and something better for the permanent, which is... Yeah, which is also a feature of these Asian societies is that they're willing to see the long term and not just the short term, as well as uh, being group oriented as well. Group rights are very, very important in, in tribal societies, such as Asian cultures. And I could see why Western Eurocentric societies may have problems with it, but it also has proven that it works when it comes to a pandemic. So your civil liberties, you have to ask yourself as a Westerner, whether your civil liberties is worth a poor quality of life. John, um, this, I know uh, the stuff we've been saying, uh, it sounds pretty, it can sound pretty bleak, you know, for uh, Western oriented audiences who uh, truly value our rights. And for people who say, you know, we've, we've, many of us have, many Americans have given up their lives uh, to preserve these rights. They have served in the military to help preserve these rights. What is the way that we, what are things we can do to make what you have said more palatable to American society? Well, I, I think the like American can, society... I guess basically what, what can the, the government do? I mean, we, we've touched on some inconsistencies with the government. Definitely we can, you know, we need to uh, figure out how to be more consistent, correct? Yeah, and that's simply just communicating to the people and explaining the logic behind why things are done and treating the people with respect, saying, look, this is what we're going to do. This is the amount of time that we're going to spend. And when we see these certain markers, we agree to move forward. Right now, none of that has, that's all the policies that are being put to place has zero logic in terms of which indices are essential, uh, what the flattening of the curve is, what does that mean, what industries are able to reopen from top to bottom. There is no explanation, there's no logic, and because of that, there cannot be an explanation, and it's just a bunch of people on a pulpit telling you what to do that seems unintelligible. Right, there's, there's no explanation as to why one type of business can open and another cannot when the virus is equally dangerous, uh, no matter what business it travels into. It takes one person to have the disease to keep on, keep this spreading, to continue perpetually. Yeah. So, I mean, if we're, John, I think if we're going to decide to open up this economy, then uh, we need to forget this uh, discrimination as to what industries can open and what industries cannot. I think every industry, every building, every church, every organization should have the right to come up with uh, reasonable protocols to be as safe as possible. Um, and I think everyone knows you know, the layout of their own building and can figure out what the best way is to um, make it as safe as possible so that people can uh, space out and uh, 
you know, if we need to, you know, install the, the, the plastic barriers, for example, and require masks and, you know, direct traffic, I think every, um, every business and organization should have the right to do that. I, I absolutely agree with you. I don't, the reality is we need to be able to live our lives with the economy being open, but be done in the most safe and preserving way of our health. That's the name of the game. So if we decide to, if we don't want to open, shut down, reopen, shut down again, and just destroying the economy and also destroying hope and giving people a sense of despair, then we need to involve the people in making this decision and having an open policy versus people at the top making random decisions. So a, a more um, participatory approach where everyone is involved in creating a safe culture for themselves rather than a top-down authoritarian approach that is based on inconsistencies, discrimination, and just flat out flawed science, unfortunately. Yes, you, you, you look at other countries and you're seeing what they do. And yet us Americans, we're not able to do it. That's ridiculous to me. We're the greatest country on the planet. And yet we're the ones that are bearing the brunt of this disease for absolutely no reason other than illogical, ill-planned policies. And I think that needs to change now. Yeah, definitely. I think if we don't learn the lessons from this pandemic soon, uh, I think uh, this country is going to keep operating on, you know, Windows safe mode until we figure out what the solution is and learn from it. There's so much fear and despair and people have no confidence of the futures. And that's ridiculous. Why does a country like Vietnam with the GDP of half the size of Los Angeles County, not having any type of high technology ability for high technology in the country is able to defeat this disease while we are sitting here suffering. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to be learned. John, uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing your, your honest opinions and sharing your insights. I know it's laid out there in Kentucky. And, but thank you so much for uh, coming on uh, to this podcast. And uh, we're going to talk again soon. Well, thank you, uh, James. I appreciate the time. And, and uh, I hope you do invite me again. And, and we'll have a wonderful discussion again. So have a good night. Thank you. Thank you.